It is good to be gathered with you here in this place today. It is good to be back from almost two weeks in Brazil, uh, doing some teaching there at a youth conference and fellowshipping with some brothers and sisters in the Lord there. It's good to be back. I know you were in good hands with Pastor Jeremy last two weeks. I thought about just letting him finish Romans. Uh, I'm sure he was uh, well on his way to do so, but uh, I'm grateful for him, grateful for each of you, and I look forward to our time back in the Word of God this morning. I do encourage you and invite you to turn to Romans chapter 16. Next week is the grand finale. We're going to be looking at the last few verses of Romans next week. We'll finish our time in this book next week, but this morning we're going to be looking in verses 17 through 23. As we've come to this point in Romans, we've come through quite a bit. Uh, Romans teaches us a lot, and we've just really began to scratch the surface in this amazing letter. It teaches us so much. It teaches us what it means to be saved by the gospel, and it teaches us what it means to be shaped by the gospel. It's a really great summary of Romans. What does it mean to be saved by the gospel? What it looks like to be shaped by the gospel. And here in Paul's letter, he gives some final instructions or encouragements, we could say, as he begins to wrap up his letter to the church at Rome. Now, he would eventually make it to Rome. He wanted to go there, and he would eventually make it there, although it wouldn't be under the circumstances he longed for and anticipated. It'd be a little different, a little bit of an arrest involved. But uh, he would make it to Rome, but in the province of God, under different circumstances. But for now, all he had were these inspired words that we read in the book of Romans. So how would he wrap it all up? What would he say in his concluding thoughts? We're going to break that up into two sermons this week and next, but we're going to begin considering that this morning as we look at Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. This is what Paul says in verse 17, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greet you. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your divine enabling. We ask for clarity and understanding of your word now. That you would plant your word deeply in our hearts and that our lives would be changed. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul, as he writes to the church in Rome, he had a lot of confidence in this church. Now, we're reminded that Paul had never been to Rome, but he knew many of the people there through various 
experiences that he had in other places. We know based upon the passage Jeremy preached last week there in 16, there were many people in Rome that Paul knew, even though he had never been there and had met the the church. He He didn't have any responsibility in starting the church at Rome. And so he writes to this we could say, pretty healthy congregation. It was a congregation that had been built upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had a lot of confidence in this church, and so Paul's writing to them not so much a letter to correct some error, as we see, like, for example, in the book of Galatians, as he writes to that church, but he's more or less writing as a way of encouragement for them to stay faithful to the gospel, but to also inform them that he's wanting to come see them. But in the midst of his, by the way, I want to come to Rome, he writes this amazing, this massive masterpiece to encourage them to remain faithful to the gospel they believed, the gospel they preached, the gospel that they had come to love. So as we think about that, as we think about these verses that we'll see this morning, in this final greeting, in these final words of instruction, we see several important important actions that Paul highlights and encourages for the church to remain faithful in the gospel. Now you'll notice here there's not so many commands. There, there's, there's, there at the, the beginning we see as he warns against divisions to watch out and to avoid. But Paul is instructing, he is exhorting in one hand, but he's also modeling on another. And we're going to see that as how it breaks out in just a moment. So in this final greeting, I want us to see three important actions that, the, that Paul encourages in his exhortation and in, in his example, he encourages the believers in Rome as he calls them to stay faithful to the gospel. So let's consider these together. He, he gives them three, three truths, three actions, and we would say that these are relevant for us just as much today as it was for the Christians in Rome when he wrote to them originally. Let's see these together. First of all, we see Paul calls them to stay vigilant. So we see this need to stay vigilant. We see this need to stay faithful to the truth. We see in verses 17 through 19, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, to keep an eye on, to watch out for those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. See, Paul had commended the church in Rome for their reputation and their faithfulness. It was a healthy and stable congregation. And looking back to last week's passage that Jeremy walked you through in verses 1 through 16 of this chapter, we see, we see that Paul knew so many of the believers there in Rome. These were Christians who believed the same gospel that Paul believed. They preached the same gospel. They lived the same gospel. And his goal was to eventually get to Rome to enjoy their fellowship and to set up a mission point for the gospel to go on to Spain. But Paul wasn't so naive to think that as good of a reputation as this church had, as faithful as they were to the gospel, he wasn't so naive to think that, there were, that they were somehow exempt from certain dangers. You see, the apparent maturity of the Roman church did not mean that they were immune to error or to danger. See, Rome, while they had many, 
who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and had built their lives upon it, Rome would have had many, many people that stood opposed to this same gospel. Even those who would claim to be Christian and yet deny the gospel in some way. It's just a simple reminder to us that not everyone who would even claim to represent the gospel is legitimate. So whether it was people in Christian by name only or it was people that were outright opposed to the gospel, Paul knew that many of them existed in Rome and that he was not so naive to think that even though this church was strong and healthy and thriving as a gospel community, that they were somehow immune to error. Paul's exhortation, watch out for those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them, he says. Now, why do you think, it's kind of surprising that Paul says that here. I mean, he's just given his his list of shout-outs, right? Verses 1 through 16, he's like, hey, tell all these people, hey. And now all of a sudden, it's like he goes back and he's like, like intense all of a sudden. Like, he's like, tell all these people I said hello, give them greetings, but watch out for those who would cause divisions. It's like a change of gear here a little bit. Why, after all that Paul has written, does he now throw this caution and warning here at the end? Well, he knows what's at stake, ultimately. And I think there are two reasons we see in the text and we see why these, this, this caution is given. First of all, he gives it for our protection, for the protection of the believers in Rome, and I think by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's for our protection today. We see that in verses 17 through 18. He says, well, watch out, those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to what you've been taught, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So, He says, watch out. There are those out there that will try to teach you something contrary to what you have been taught. Notice two observations about the approach of these false teachers. Now, it's it's important for us to note that Paul does not identify a particular group of false teachers, nor does he identify particular false teaching that he's attacking. Galatians is another example where he he really narrows down his scope of instruction and warning. Here it's left a little broad, but I want you to notice two observations about the approach of these who would seek to cause division and set up obstacles. Number one, notice their motive. It wasn't Jesus. He says, verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, their own belly, if you will. These were self-serving people. They were, the only thing that they were about was their own ego. They were about building crowds for their sake. They were about building their own name. And it's a reminder to us all that we have to be very careful in our approach to this life. We will either serve Jesus or we will serve something or someone else. And that's what you see here. He, he gives that contrast in verse 18. They're, they're not serving Christ, they're serving their own appetites. Reminded what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, for many of whom I have often told you. 
This was not new. This was not new to the people. Paul, one of Paul's constant warnings to churches was watch out for those who would seek to distort, distort the gospel and divert you away from the truth. This was commonplace in, in Paul's ministry. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Friends, understand this. When people are seeking to divert you away from the truth of the gospel, it is not Jesus Christ they are serving. It is themselves. So notice their motive. It's a very selfish, ungodly motive. But notice, importantly, their method. It says in verse 18 that these people go about not serving Christ but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the simple or the naive. Notice, Paul is not warning. He's not reverting back to chapter 14 and 15 where he's talking about the differences between the weak and the strong. He's not not going back there. This is a warning against differences between those who believe the true gospel and those who do not. He's warning against those who would cause divisions based upon a corruption or a denial of the gospel. And he says they're slick about it. You know, they're not going to have a Facebook page called Corrupted Gospel. They're not going to be self-pronounced false teachers. They're not going to have a t-shirt that says, I'm a false teacher. And they will often say good things. Like, we're called to love our neighbors. We're called to do good. But the problem with all of this is, what, is, is not what they say so much, it's what they don't say. Even if you hear good things and right things, what you will not hear from these kinds of people is any reference to to the doctrine of sin, to the doctrines of grace, to the doctrine of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. This is what is denied. Yeah, they will say some good things and they will say it well. They're, They're excellent orators. They wear their designer suits. They fill arenas. They own their private jets, and their books are on the bestseller list at the local bookstore. These people are dangerous people. The reason that Paul, at the end of Romans, warns against such people is because of the influence that they have. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, that'll never happen to me, you are prime target for these kinds of people. Many of them will come from outside of the church, and certainly in our culture we see that today, but many of them will come from within. And they're good at what they're saying. They're smart, they're witty, but we know that they're ultimately manipulated by the master deceiver. Friends, if someone is preaching a message that's cute, that's kind of cutting edge, hip, and all of those kinds of things. But if it's a message that is not centered on or flows from the truth that before a holy God, we are all sinners in need of salvation, and that salvation is not dependent upon us or in us in any way, but that it is dependent upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then don't buy it for a second. 
There are a lot of good things said out there, but if it's not flowing from the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do, do not buy it. And watch out for these people because it is all around you. So this is for your protection. Paul gives this here as a warning for your protection. He's not naive to think that you're somehow immune just because you're in a church, that you hear God's word preached every single week and the gospel embraced and loved and all that we do, even in our service, we're very intentional about making sure the gospel is seen and declared and sung and prayed and received through the word. Even in all of this, don't think for a minute that I'm good to go. People just like us every single day falling by the wayside. It's for your protection, but it's also, number two, for our witness. Look at verse 19. It's a little bit awkward as Paul says this, but he, he, he warns about these smooth talkers, and he says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Here in verse 19, he reminds the Christians in Rome that if they were to fall prey to a corrupted gospel, their defection from the faith would have a massive and lasting impact. It wouldn't just be, if they were to fall prey to these false teachers, it wouldn't just be Paul that they've disappointed. Their witness has been known, we're told, in verse 8 of chapter 1, Their faith had been known to the entire known world. The Roman Christians had a reputation, not just in Rome, but scattered throughout the known world at that time. And had they fallen prey to a false gospel, to a distorted gospel, and had they given way to these these ones who would seek to cause division, they would have ruined their testimony. See, they had a good reputation, and Paul knew that any slight infiltration of doctrinal error would have reaching consequences for the sake of the gospel. Friends, just think about that. Think about churches we hear about periodically that they've now kind of gone astray from the truth. Or you hear about leaders and church leaders and pastors or church planters that fall into sin, what happens? The testimony of the gospel is impacted. The beauty and and glory and character of Christ is impacted through the error that these would fall into. And see, what Paul knew is he knew that there would be those outside of the church in Rome that knew their faith had been proclaimed in all the world and there would be these false teachers, these people who did not embrace the true gospel that knew that and therefore these Roman Christians would be prime targets for their attacks. They would have sought to capitalize on the Christians at Rome to do harm for the cause of the gospel and that made them prime targets. Friends, let this be a sobering and clear reminder to you and to me that any Christian or any church that believes and preaches and seeks to live out the true gospel of Jesus Christ will always be a target for the evil one. Know that if Satan can impact the witness of a healthy, gospel-preaching, gospel-believing church, 
he will most certainly give everything he has to do so. Friends, what we do here every single week in our singing and in our praying and in our reading and hearing of God's word, everything that we do every single week that we do it is a constant threat and all-out assault on the kingdom of darkness. I don't know if you realize you entered into a war zone this morning. What, we did, what we're doing here this morning is a direct assault upon the kingdom of darkness. And the evil one is not happy about it. So Paul's warning is to watch out. Watch out for those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul's conclusion is to avoid them. I don't think he means absolutely no contact since we actually have a responsibility to preach the true gospel to them. But to make sure that your contact with them is not in such a way where, where, you're, where you're saying all is well with these people. He says avoid them. Do not be influenced and taken under their, their influence. A couple of points of application I want to point out here. So yes, that means my number one point will be the longest this morning as it typically is. A couple of points of application when we hear this, just two things. Number one, it reminds us that doctrine matters. Every Christian, listen to me, every Christian, even if you are eight years old or 88 years old, every Christian has a responsibility to be eager students of God's word. The Bereans in Acts chapter 17, I think, are always great examples for us, aren't they? Told in Acts 17 verse 11, they were more noble Jews than the ones in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Friends, that's normal Christianity. Late R.C. Sproul said this about the importance of truth. He said, there are many Christians who do not want to be engaged in a laborious study of the Word of God. They say they want to keep the faith simple and childlike, but there is a difference between childlike faith and a childish faith. We are to be childlike in our acquiescence to the authority of God, but we are to be adults in our understanding. I think that's a huge clarification we know that in Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews talks about it, the, the, the importance to be mature and growing, not, not sipping on the milk, but going for that which is healthy. Friends, again, if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you profess to know Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility to continue to grow in your understanding of the truth. Doctrine is not something that's optional for the Christian. You... All of you, if you name the name of Christ, have a responsibility to understand what is true and to grow in that understanding. And we know that there is a standard of teaching. There is a body of doctrine that we are called to embrace. Paul mentions it here, doesn't he? Verse 17, 
create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. In Romans 6, verse 17, he talks about a standard of teaching. When he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about the pattern of sound words. In Acts chapter 20, we're told about the whole counsel of God. There is a body of teaching. There is a standard of doctrine that we are all responsible to believe and to build our lives on. There are boundaries to that standard of teaching. There are, there are, there are markers that, that point out this is true and this is not. And we're responsible to believe and to embrace the truth. And friends, I, I know that we, we sometimes hear this, but the Christian church in the West especially is not in a healthy place, doctrinally. Bible teacher Jen Wilkin, someone who often speaks to the issue of biblical illiteracy, she says this, Biblical literacy matters because it protects us from falling into error. Both false teacher and the secular humanists rely on biblical ignorance for their messages to take root. And the modern church has proven fertile ground for those messages. Because we don't know our Bible, we crumble at the most basic challenges to our worldview. And therefore, disillusionment and apathy continue to eat away at our ranks. Friends, this is, this is vital. I, know, I don't know how it was for you. I grew up in school. and, and Maybe it was the crowd I hung around. I don't, maybe I was in a bad group of people or peers. But it was almost like there was this badge of honor for being dumb. Anybody have any of those kinds of friends? Like the smarter you were, the, you kind of got picked on more. And so it was like you don't want to do too well because you don't want to be laughed at. But then you're going to be laughed at later because, you know, what are you going to do with your life? That kind of thing. And so it was almost like this badge of honor for, for being dumb or to not somehow do your homework or to always be copying someone else's homework. But friend, let me, let me remind us this morning, it is no badge of honor to not know your Bible and the God who inspired it. Friend, we are all called to embrace the standard of teaching, to build our lives upon the standard of teaching, and to know when something is contrary to this standard of teaching. If you are, and there's none of us in this room, seminary degree or not, none of us in this room are at a point of ever thinking, you know, I've got enough on my belt here to, to I think I can take on any false teacher that comes my way because I know it all. We're all continuing to give ourselves to this standard of teaching and growing in that standard of teaching. That's why it's so vital that we, that we emphasize the centrality of preaching God's word every week, that we study the Bible together in community, that we invest our lives personally to get to know the word of God. Just, just know this. If the last time you opened your Bible was last Sunday... You are easy bait for Satan. Low-hanging fruit. Now, we're not legalists here at Redeeming Grace, and so I'm not going to tell you how often and how much you ought to be reading, but if the last time you opened your Bible was last Sunday, that's, that's a sad indictment. Not just upon you, but upon us. Friends, we must give ourselves to the priority of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, 
strength. Don't be easy bait for the evil one. Doctrine matters. Number two, wisdom matters. Paul rejoices over the believers there, and he restates his desire for them to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. We see that in verse 19. I rejoice over you. He's happy about these Christians. Really, you don't see in this book at all any kind of gripe Paul has. He's encouraged by them, and he's excited about it. I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Similar to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Paul says something similar in his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 14. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Here's the reality. All of us, this week, this today, all of us today, this week, will be pressured in some way to compromise the truth. You're going to be pressured this week, probably today, maybe already happened today to you, to compromise the truth, to, to give way to what is right and what is good, to, to, to not be so wise as to what is good and to embrace maybe more and more of that which is evil. You see, the voice of the culture is only going to get louder. It's pretty loud now. We're not a majority in this world. We never have been. I think based upon Scripture, I don't think we ever will be. We're not a majority in this country. We're called to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not going to get easier. We're called to live in a way, we're told, that reflects the character and commands of God. And so, church, let us be like this. This is a prayer and a hope I have for Redeeming Grace Baptist Church that we would be wise to what is good and that we would be innocent as to what is evil. That we would be experts in what is good and right and true and that we would be innocent regarding that which is evil. Wisdom matters. How you live, wisdom is not just intellectual knowledge. It is the practice of what you know. It is discernment. We need godly discernment to know what the difference is between that which is right and that which is wrong, and that by the Spirit of God and the Word of God that we would make good, healthy choices because we know that it brings glory and honor and praise to our King. So doctrine matters and wisdom matters. So that is the need to stay vigilant. There's a need for that. There's a need for us to stay awake, to stay alert, to watch out, and to avoid those who would seek to do harm to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second point, second truth that we're called to here is pretty simple. Verse 20, this is the call to remain confident. Paul said a lot in Romans. He said a lot about the gospel, the implications of the gospel, how that's lived out in life and community together, but there's one thing he's really not addressed head on, and that is Satan. But right here, at the end of Romans, Paul gives Satan one verse, and he says he loses. One verse, Paul says, Satan's doomed. See that in verse 20? The God of peace will soon crush Satan. 
under your feet. It's kind of a juxtaposition of words, isn't it? The God of peace will crush. This peaceful God will crush the serpent. Paul reminds us, first of all, of promised victory. As Paul says what he does in verse 20, he's reaching back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, where God tells man and woman in the garden, the serpent, there's coming a day when the head of the serpent will be crushed. God will have the final word, and our enemy will finally and fully be defeated. And notice what he says. He says the God of peace will crush soon, crush Satan under your feet. In some mysterious way, not only are we co-heirs with Christ, but our union with Christ means that we are co-conquerors with Christ. That somehow in the mysterious providence, providence of God, that the triumph of Christ is our triumph. Friends, what a wonderful reminder this is to us. There are many days we need to just cling tightly to verse 20. What hope we find in this verse. What a wonderful reminder that there is coming a day when the attacks and the assaults and the influence of Satan will be no more. His influence in this world is short-lived. And there's coming a day when all of his tactics, all of these disruptions and deceit, there, there will be no more. Let that be an encouragement to you. When you're having a day where you just feel like assault after assault after assault has come your way, I think Luther had it perfectly right in his great hymn. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Sure, it's confident. We know, we know that the doom of Satan is a reality. God has promised it. And in one way, he was decisively defeated at the cross. We see that in Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15, where Paul is writing to the church there. He says, having been, uh, excuse me, he says, and, and you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And we know that you get to Revelation chapter 20. You see that it's coming a day when the when Satan will be cast into that eternal lake of fire forever and ever. Friends, we have a promised victory. We have absolute assurance that God wins and Satan loses. That should encourage you. It sometimes doesn't feel that way. I get it. We, we live in the day and time where the pressure is so big, the, the clouds are so dark, and the difficulty is so intense that we wonder, we, we doubt this sometimes, but it's right here in black and white print. So this week, when you're struggling, go to Romans chapter 16, in Paul's conclusion, and say to yourself and remind yourself that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a promise. It's a given. But not only do we have promised victory, we have promised grace to see us to that victory. Notice what Paul, in essence, prays. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
He knows if we're going to see that victory, that it's going to be the grace of God that gets us there. This grace that saves us is also the grace that sustains us. And what beautiful grace, amazing grace it truly is. So not only do we see the, do we see the need to stay vigilant, we see the priority, the reminder that we have in our lives to stay confident. But then we also see the priority to stay connected in verses 21 through 23. Last week, Jeremy did an excellent job walking you through the list of greetings, verses 1 through 16. And you may think you read, you know, maybe you read in your daily Bible and you're like, oh, well, this is just a bunch of greetings. I'm going to skip over it and get to the next place. Again, these are inspired words. Be unwise for us to overlook them and to not see their importance here in our passage. Jeremy last week showed how even in these greetings, how he highlighted the importance of gospel community and gospel friendships and gospel hospitality. And Paul had made many connections throughout his journeys, and these relationships were absolutely vital to him and his ministry. And here, in verse 21 through 23, we have a list of a few more names. Now, these were not names of people who were in Rome. These were names of people who accompanied and helped Paul in his missions and ministry. We see a list of them. Timothy, one of Paul's dearest and closest friends. He joined Paul on his second missionary journey and was likely his co-worker again, joining Paul in Corinth for his third missionary journey. And in Corinth was from where Paul wrote this letter. So Timothy's with him most likely there as Paul writes these words. You know this same Timothy that Paul writes two letters to in the New Testament? Not only do we have Timothy, we have Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. He says, these are my kinsmen. Likely he means there, these are fellow Jews. Jason was likely the Jason that served Paul during his brief and difficult stay in Thessalonica. You can read about that in Acts chapter 17. Sosipater was likely from Berea. The same Bereans that searched the scriptures daily. And he also accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey. And then notice in verse 22... I love this little verse in Romans. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, little is known about Tertius, but we know that he served as Paul's private secretary. This is the guy that physically wrote this letter at Paul's dictation, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I love it because it's as if Paul's saying all these things and you know, send greetings from this person, this person, and Tertius is inspired by the Spirit. By the way, I say, hey, too. A little shout out from me. I'm the one who's wrote this long letter. And we have Gaius, likely from Corinth, probably the same Gaius in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14, who hosted Paul and many other Christians there in his home. Erastus, the city treasurer, likely the city treasurer in Corinth, Sometimes, you know, we get this impression that Christians in this day, and many were persecuted, and, and many were, were looked down upon, but sometimes we get this impression as if uh, Christians were always outcast and not necessarily involved in important roles. But here we see an example of a Christian who served as the city treasurer in Corinth and was very instrumental, apparently, in Paul's ministry and life. And then Cortus, a fellow believer, we're told, Nothing more. But here we have 
a list of eight individuals that served with Paul in some capacity. And we know there were far more that served with Paul throughout his missionary journeys, but right now at this time, as he's in Corinth, writing to Rome, writing to these Christians, it's these that, that, that he's surrounded by. Now why is all of this important? There's no exhortation here. There's no command given here for us or even to the believers in Rome. Paul's just simply giving greetings from his co-workers in the gospel. Why is this important for us to see? It's important for us to see because what Paul is doing here is he is modeling a beautiful reality of how ministry ought to be done. Ministry is done best in community, not in isolation. And Paul, by the grace of God, had surrounded himself with a team of men and women that served the advance of the gospel. Think about this letter alone. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, dictated by Paul, written by Tertius, while being hosted by Gaius, and delivered by Phoebe. What a team. All of these were part of this important letter being delivered. A beautiful picture that we, he, we, that we see here, a great model for ministry Friends, it's a reminder that we are in this work together. And we'd be foolish to think that we could ever do any of this on our own. Friends, it's a reminder that we are called to surround ourselves with faithful, godly people who are willing to roll their sleeves up and give themselves for the sake of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the glory and praise of God. And never, it's a reminder for us to never underestimate even the slightest of contributions. I think the coffee that Gaius served Paul was huge in keeping him awake long enough to write this long letter. That's not the text. I get it. But his hospitality was certainly important, enough so for Paul to, to highlight it here, wasn't it? Never underestimate, even the smallest of contributions, everyone and every act of service done with gospel motives matters. You don't have to be the preacher or the church planter or a missionary. You may be holding the line. You may be praying. You may be giving. You may be hosting. And it all matters if done with gospel motives. Because remember, our lives are called to be a living sacrifice. And here we see the beauty of when we live out our lives together with a gospel-driven agenda, when we become sacrifices together. And friend, that's exactly what we pray for and want here at Redeeming Grace. May God in his grace and in his providence help us to be a people, a community, that not only just gather together on Sundays, but serve together that invest together, that steward the resources he's given us together, to understand that we are in this together. Listen, the Lord put us together for a reason. We have here at Redeeming Grace, I think, good community. But the reality is that not everyone always feels or experiences that. Many often feel excluded and overlooked, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. I've thought long and hard about it, and I can come up with a lot of reasons as to why that often exists, not just here, but in many other places. But friends, what we're called to 
is we're called to, regardless of our experience, regardless of how we may feel, we're called to be intentional at working. Do you think it came easy for Paul to connect with certain people? I mean, he had some disagreements with some people along the way. Was it John Mark that he had a little disagreement with? But later in his life, as he's writing to Timothy, I think it's in 2 Timothy, he's like, bring Mark with you. He understood his value and his importance, his relationship. Friends, we have to be intentional with this. Uh, Isaac Adams, he's an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he tweeted this a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was so helpful. He said this, where you live, where you work, who you know. Where you live, where you work, and who you know, none of these things are accidents. So don't complain about them, but steward them. Steward them. That doesn't always come easy. That's our responsibility. Friend, you are no accident. And it is no accident that you are right here on this day in this place. This is the outworking of God's sovereign purposes. This is it. It's a little, little, little tidbit of that on the scale of the world. So let's be faithful to steward our resources and our gifts together in Christian community, a growing community, a thriving community that understands that we're not just here to come to some Sunday event and be encouraged like a pep rally and go off into our week all alone, but rather that we're called to invest ourselves in this church family. And some of you need to expand your horizons. you got your little group. You need to look beyond that group. There are other people here. And some of you need to continue to Give yourself day in and day out and faithfully to love people, to invest in relationships, understanding that this is not about us. It's not ultimately about how we feel or how connected we feel. This is about the glory of God and seeing the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. That's what we're called to do. And God has put this group of people together in this time, in this place, at this location to do it together. So this is just a little reminder. I'm getting all this out of these verses. Yes, it might be a stretch, but it's there. Friends, you are no accident. This church is no accident. This partnership that we share together, the partners we have in our community together, is no accident. It is the sovereign work of God where he is working in and through us to bring us to a point of serving his cause and his name together. So, as a people who have been saved by the gospel, And as a people who are continually being shaped by the gospel, by the grace of God, this is what Paul is inspired by the Spirit to say, by the grace of God, friends, let's be radically committed by God's grace to stay alert, stay vigilant, to be aware of those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine we've been taught. Grow in your understanding of the truth. Don't be easy bait for the evil one. Let's stay vigilant, but let's also remain confident. We live in discouraging, trying days, but listen, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The down payment was at the cross when Jesus declared victory, when he rose from the dead, declaring victory over sin and death once and for all, and there's coming a day when when it will all be complete. Stay confident. And brothers and sisters, let's stay connected. Let's stay committed to each other. Let's love each other. Let's go out of our way to serve each other and be connected to each other because we are in this not just for each other. We are called to be together here for something far greater, 
far more glorious than you and me. And that is the gospel that Paul so eloquently wrote throughout this letter, inspired by the, by the grace of God to do so. So let's stay vigilant, let's remain confident, and let's stay connected for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're called to do until Jesus comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of reminder, of exhortation. Thank you for this example that Paul models so well. Father, we live in a world that's often filled with challenges and trying times and difficulty and confusion. Father, this is a reminder to us, a call to us, that we would stay awake and stay alert and and that we would be careful and watch out for those who would seek to destroy us. My prayer is that Redeeming Grace Baptist Church would be a vigilant church, that we would take care to invest in truth, that we would build our lives on 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 the body of sound teaching, God, that you would protect us from error, that you would keep us firm and committed to what is right. Father, my prayer is that we as believers here, as a church family, that we would be confident, that we would not seek to find our confidence in the way that the news cycle runs, that our confidence would ebb and flow based upon what we hear in the world today and tomorrow, but Lord, that our confidence would be rooted upon the promises of the gospel. That God, that you would continue to increase our confidence and that you would help us remain faithful because of that confidence. Father, my prayer is that you, would, that you would do far more than we could think or imagine. Father, my prayer for Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is that we would be a thriving community of people who love each other, that are committed to each other, that we would take great pain to invest in each other's lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, do this work. We can't do it on our own. We need your grace and we need your power and we need your help. So we ask for it now. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.